Look Kemalut. I'm Erin Cook and today we're chatting with Oliver Slow who has just released uh, Return of the Junta. Ollie is a former Frontier Myanmar journalist and his deep, deep uh, knowledge, interest and love of Myanmar really, really shines through in this book. Uh, he takes a, a broad look at the history of the, the Myanmar military, also known as the Tatmadaw, as well as how the military has used various techniques, you could say, in keeping control, keeping a firm hand on the country over decades and decades in power. And now again, of course, with the coup in 2021. Uh, it's, a, it's a broad book. It looks at not just uh, the, the history of the Tatmadaw, but also its influence on a couple of social uh, sectors, including education and healthcare, which were the two that I found most, most compelling, as well as the impact of Tatmadaw policies and violence in a couple of different states across the country. Okay, so let's jump into it. Here's Ollie Slow. Thank you. In the introduction to Return of the Hunter lays out his original plans, what the book was going to be all the way back in uh, 2015. So he was going to take a, you know, a, a travelogue type look at the country. Between then and now, of course, the, the promise, the optimism of Myanmar has changed completely. Oli told me that as Myanmar went along its very bumpy, very bumpy road towards democracy, it became clear to him that the Tatmadaw is part of virtually every story in Myanmar. And then, of course, the coup happens. Yeah, I mean... I... It changed probably three or four times in, in, as it started. So it started out as a in sort of back in 2015 as a kind of very light-hearted kind of travel book, trying to document what was then a pretty positive transition. So around that time, that was of course the 2015 election, and I travelled a lot and was like, okay, here's a book, you know, documenting the voices I've heard, speaking to the people I've spoken to. But it was really only two years later in 2017 when the Rohingya sort of crisis crackdown happened. I was reporting on that. I was like, oh, hey, hang on, I need to do, this needs to be a pretty different book. I guess a much more serious book in a way and look a bit more deeper at some of the underlying issues. So I thought, okay, well, then I, I thought, well, what, what is the kind of common thread here running through all the reporting? And it was, was the military. So I, I kind of changed it a little from what, what the chapters were kind of focused on. Each chapter was in a part of the country and, you know, travel to those places, do this kind of travel logging story. So, but then around 2017, I guess it would have been sort of early 2018 when sort of came out the other side of that crisis, started kind of reshaped the book along those lines. So rather than say, you know, a book on just traveling in Chin State, it was like the legacy of military rule in Chin State. And then in, at that point, I think I had a chapter in Mandalay and the legacy there of the military and up in Shan State and the legacy of conflict. So it kind of evolved a little more into the military. And actually at the time, the book was called After the, After the Junta. So the idea was like, okay, the Junta's gone away. Here's this move to democracy. And then, of course, that coup happened, and I kind of had a bit of a shape of the book, but I realized I needed to fine-tune it even more. Change The title became Return of the Junta over like another six months or so, because it's a bit of a process. But I really probably, after that coup happened, obviously, was, I think anyone who knows me, I think that first month was a bit of a shock. And I, was, I think it was focused on just kind of reporting on it and, and you know, supporting friends and you know, I couldn't even think about the book at that point because it was such a, I think, a shock to the system. But then as time wore on, I was like, okay, well, I've got this book on the military. Uh, I need to fine tune it a little bit. And I spent maybe, I think, another month or so just like, okay, how do I just then really focus on, I can't remember exactly what where it went at that point before, but it wasn't as focused on the military as it, as it became. 
And then it was like, okay, well, how have they, you know, we're looking at the military today and how the violence that they're up to now, but really what I, my premise really was to look at how they've ruled the country since the 60s. So I sort of focused not just on the violence, which is what obviously the headline stuff and understandably, but, you know, the historic violence going far back as the 60s, but also the dismantling of the education system, which kind of came about again in 62, when the socialist system came in and they tried to kind of multi uh, cultivate and mold the people as kind of pliant um, to the military, essentially. That was kind of a pretty systematic effort, which then got continued by separate junters. And then, of course, looking at things like the, the destruction of the economy um, and then the, the, the division between different ethnic groups. So yeah, it was it was kind of um, yeah there were a lot of different moving parts, but it was really after the coup where I decided okay I really settled on a structure to that. Return of the Junta has been published almost exactly two years after the coup in Myanmar, but before that, of course, we had the pandemic. It's not an easy easy book to report with this sort of scope, but with those sorts of limitations, how did you approach reporting? Yeah, pretty much. So I, I, a lot of reporting is. Um, from my time with Frontier, so like this, you know, a lot of some of the particularly sort of going into like the places like Chin State was taken from trips where I, you know, I had my, obviously I took a lot of notes at the time, so I could go back and lean on those and pull those, pull a bit more of information out from those trips. My plan initially was when the um, pandemic. I'd been in Yangon in, so I'd left, I'd left Yangon in twenty mid twenty nineteen. Was planning on sort of covering the region. At that time, I was moving on, planning on moving to Penang. And it, I was in back at last in Yangon in January 2020, and the plan was to kind of go. I was back in Bangkok and I was planning to go back and spend like a month in Nepidor, finishing up some, some a bit more of a focus on some of the military, try and meet some of the more senior figures. And the plan during the pandemic was to obviously go back, and then and then of course the coup hit, and I realised I couldn't go back at all really. If I was you know the work the work I've been doing was it just wasn't worth my risk going back. So I um I had to rely I had to rely a lot unfortunately on those last the last little bit of reporting on. I guess less on the military than I'd like. I'd like to have delved a little bit more into some of the figures, but it wasn't to be. I tried to reach out to some figures after the coup, but either the numbers changed or I couldn't reach them. So I, that's why the focus then became, in the opening chapter, a bit more about the resistance, because I think that's a really important aspect. So that was more about reaching out to people who'd, you know, made it to border areas. Some of the people I met in Thailand, because I was there. So yeah, it sort of became, that last reporting stage became a bit more, okay, we'll try to be a bit pragmatic. What have I got access to? And try and kind of lean on that a little bit. One thing that really, really strikes me in Return of the Hunter is uh, the bravery and the generosity of a lot of Ollie's sources in sharing uh, some deeply, deeply personal experiences, um, a lot of it devastating uh, family experiences to do with the Tatmadaw. Throughout the book, he makes a point of saying um, some people are very, very open. We'll happily sit down and chat to him for a few hours about, you know, what, what happened in their town decades ago, while uh, others completely declined to speak to him, which is also fair enough. How do you manage those fears? And what was your experience in why so many people were so open with you despite all of these fears? Yeah, I mean, honestly, people were, were so, I mean, that's what I felt. So when I was, you know, just to go back on my time there, you know, genuinely was, would travel to places. And as you say, the generosity of people just to, to sit down and talk to you. And, you know, you work in journalism, right? It's, it's pretty incredible where you go up to someone and go, well, you like, I'm not going to give you any money here, but will you just like spend time and tell me a story? And people do, right? And I always start to find that quite a strange transaction. But yeah, in Myanmar, like I, I felt, especially in those kind of, that 2015, 2018, 19 era, I just had, was in this really privileged position where I was like, this story interests me. 
uh, I'm going to find a window to, no, I'd obviously travel with a Myanmar colleague who, you know, I have a report, who do obviously photography and help translate or would work as a translator. And we just go and go to areas that, you know, I don't think had had that many reporters up there. So maybe it was a case of people just wanted to tell their story. Yeah, people just, just as you say, really, really generous for their time. I don't know if people just had a lot of information they've been holding in for a long time and wanted to share it. But yeah, I mean, it was, um, it was a great experience just to be able to, and there were some cases where I just, I felt, yeah, people, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be like, okay, no, no foreigners have gone here before. That feels like a kind of nonsense line. But it was certainly felt like it was, these were kind of pretty underreported stories. And I felt pretty, as I say, pretty privileged just to be able to go up and tell them. As the people's movement continues fighting the good fight, Aung San Suu Kyi is less the, uh, the catalyst of the movement and it's more a focus on the people themselves. Return of the Junta really dodges that hagiography that we see in a lot of books written about Myanmar in the past. Where does Aung San Suu Kyi stand now in relation to the resistance? Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I think she's, she's like anyone. She's a human, right? You know, people, people are complicated. People are conflicted. And I think this whole, as you said, the hagiography around her is, is problematic for me. But for anyone, I don't think anyone is, is straightforward good or straightforward bad. I think there was this really clear narrative, especially in the West back in the 90s, 2000s, where she was held up as this kind of great savior of the nation. Uh, and if she came to power, all Myanmar's issues would be solved. But no, you know, that's not true of anyone. Um, and especially a country as complex as, uh, as Myanmar, right? It, it needs like a whole kind of nation building project rather than relying on one individual. And I think as much as it's problematic that she, she, she definitely bought into narrative and that was part of the issue, I think. But also the West, the Western kind of, I have, I have a bit of issue sometimes with the way Western media like has really simplistic, creates really simplistic narratives around really complex issues. And I think in particularly Myanmar in the 90s, that was true. In terms of, you know, she didn't stand up. You know, the Rohingya situation was was appalling in 2017, and I think she had an opportunity there to kind of Nelson, a nice Nelson Mandela moment, if you will. She was so, you know, held up in the country as this kind of she was, she is, and was still much loved in the country. And I think there was a moment there in 2017 when the Rohingya were being, you know, attacked. That violence. It was very clear what was happening. She had an opportunity to kind of come in with a with a pretty calm message, call for unity, and she didn't take that. She came, and I think that was a real missed opportunity, and she actually played into the vision that was happening at the time. I understand that maybe she didn't feel the need she could speak out against the military because of that complex relationship and the power they held, but there was definitely an opportunity to kind of make a much more kind of unifying message, which she didn't take. Like, I mean, I don't think she's a good person. I don't think she's a bad person. I think she's a complicated character. I mean, that's, that's my view. I mean, she's lived a hell of a life. Whatever you think about her, she's lived a hell of a life. And it's pretty tragic that now it's, it seems like she's going to be spending the rest of her day potentially either in house arrest or prison in Myanmar. It's, it's really, you know, it's a, it's a true, awful, awful story for the, for the entire country, I think. How do you think that the leadership of General Min Hong Lin has determined the Tatmadaw's response to the resistance, especially compared to previous Tatmadaw leaders in Myanmar? Anyone who, you know, the Tatmadaw is a real... It's been it's been described as a state within a state. It's a real kind of like it's it, if you're if you're at the top of the Tatmadaw, right? You you really buy into this belief that you really buy into this belief that sort of the Tatmadaw is the um the, uh, I sort of use this line the one institution that can hold the country together. It, it goes it, it, you know, in the book. Hopefully, I try and try and pull this out a little bit. It was founded in like as an anti-colonial fighting force during the Second World War. It it kind of held the country together in the difficult few years for our dependence and then it sort of evolved from the 60s into this massive institution that is today and you know anyone who's at the top like kind of the top of that institution buys into this mindset in the same way that Ney Wynne did in the same way that Dan Shui did these previous dictators did 
they sort of maintain this belief that it is the the Tatmadaw is the only institution that can hold the country together and they're the only ones who can rule the country and I think he in, in that in that sense he's exactly the same as those previous leaders that's why the coup took place they just were like okay we want you know I can go into this a bit later on but basically that that democracy project that they started 10 years earlier that, with that very pithy name of um, what do they call it discipline flourishing democracy um, that kind of risks spiraling out of control because you know the NLD had won essentially landslides in 2015-2020 and I think they worried that that would potentially then spiral and the NLD would take full control. So I think he really sort of bought into that mindset in the same way that his predecessor did. The way I sort of see, I don't know if it's a difference, but I think, I, you know, the Tatmador has been violent in the past, but I don't think... Yeah, so I mean, you know, the Tatmador under his watch, I, I think is, is much more violent than any the Tatmador has been in the past. I think in the past we have had, you know, there has been violence in Myanmar, of course there has, but on this scale, every day, across the country, the atrocities we're seeing, you know, the dropping bombs on kids in schools, the dropping bombs on a concert in Kachin State, torching villages, trapping old people, in, you know, it's just horrendous, right? And I don't think, I think this is even more violent than the past. I think it's somehow even, you know, military war in Myanmar has been pretty awful for a long time, but I don't think ever this awful. And that's probably largely because the resistance against it has never been this strong. Another thing that I really appreciate about Return of the Junta is that Oli has managed to break down the, the ecosystem of various armed ethnic groups across the country, which is, you know, for a Myanmar dilettante like myself, a really, really hard thing to get your head across. He does a fantastic job of going deep into the experience of these various groups with the Tatmadaw over various long-running conflicts. But what's really interesting to me is that there is a link between some of these groups and the emerging People's Defence Force. And by teaming up, that's becoming a major arm of the resistance. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's much more successful than I think anyone gave, expected it to be. When those PDS were first formed, what was that sort of the May, June 21? I don't think anyone really gave them much of an opportunity to, to stand up or have any sort of success against the military. You know, bear in mind, obviously, the military has these weapons from China, from Russia, increasingly, um, and these huge kind of, you know, air power and things. So I think no one really gave them an opportunity. So there wasn't much belief that they would do well against them, basically. But they've really, they've done, I think, much, much better than anyone anticipated. They're, they're highly motivated. You know, they're improving their supply, supply lines with their arms. They're building their own weapons. They're building their own drones. You know, they're, they're pretty, um, when you look at some of, the, some of their operations, they're pretty, like, some real sort of impressive engineering feats in some of the stuff, the stuff they've made. So they're, do, they're doing a lot better than expected, and especially in certain areas around the country, uh, say in some of some of the areas of North Central Myanmar, they're actually taking control of, of areas. Well, they, they certainly were until recently. Uh, and I think that's incredible. No one gave that opportunity. Whether that's enough to kind of overthrow the military, I think maybe is a bit of a different story, or certainly it will take a long, long time. But they, you know, they are linking up with some of these existing groups with the sort of Karen resistance that's been there since the 40s and 50s, the Kachin groups that have been there since the 50s and 60s, the Chin, the Chin groups that have been there since the 80s and 90s. Um, and I, I guess as those relationships evolve, as the supply lines improve, then maybe they'll make more and more inroads in, you know, militarily. Um, but as I say, I don't think this will be, unfortunately, a uh, quick battle. I think it's something that could drag out, drag out for many more years. A compelling part within Return of the Junta that I've not seen elsewhere 
um, beyond a bit of the reporting about defecting soldiers, uh, particularly across the border into Thailand and India, Ollie speaks with Yi Suta, who is a former Tamadao, um officer who defected towards the beginning of the junta regime. Um, and he has a very, very interesting view in that uh, many of the, the foot soldiers, the lower rungs of the Tatmadaw, are just as much victims of the of the Tatmadaw leadership as as the wider community. And Ollie explains to us now why that's the case. Yeah, yeah. So his his point really was uh, so he was a def- he'd been a captain of the Tatmadaw. He, not long after the coup, he then defected to kind of the resistance side. And last, at least when I last spoke to him, it was probably about a year or so ago. He was pretty heavily involved in trying to bring defectors across the resistance. Um, I, I believe that sort of lost from from I have it's not an issue I follow as closely in recent months, but I think from I think from frontier reporting, some of that momentum has stalled a little bit. But I think it's still there's still obviously efforts to make it happen. And his view really was that we, you know the public shouldn't vilify these soldiers um, because it's the it's the generals at the top of the army who are making these decisions, and then essentially these these soldiers are just following orders and doing what their superiors tell them to do. And I think there's there's um, there's an element of of truth to that, I guess. I mean, you know, there are issues, of course, of people just following following orders, of course. But these are often just you know the the for a long time. It's it's recruitment technique has been to just take like you know, Myanmar is an incredibly poor country, right? Especially around in these rural, in these villages in the heart, of the, in the heart of the country. And often what they'll do is go in and literally like drag kids out of schools. Yeah, this has been documented, right? Where they just like were literally taking kids out of schools and then sending them into the army. They were pick kids. There was there was literally quite a few cases again, go back into the nineties, two thousands of um, soldiers or more senior soldiers literally picking off like kids living in you know, homeless kids in the street. Because they would they would then like get paid these kind of fees to bring in kids from the street into the army, you know, really grim tactics. So these are just like kids with no opportunity. They've just they're no education. They come from really poor backgrounds, and they're just like, okay, here's a gun. Um, they're treated almost like cannon fodder by their superiors. They're beaten by their superiors. They have to often pay for you know they don't, they've got almost on top of being given really poor wages, they're often being forced to. Pay for the pay for their own meals. Pay for often there was one case someone I spoke to where they had to they're living in a jungle somewhere and they had to pay for their own supplies even to make their own makeshift home and they were still you know they were getting almost nothing from the army as well. So these are really these are really kind of downtrodden people. I, I, I'd say there is a difference. There is these kind of um, ones who are like from a very poor background, and then there is the more brutal soldiers who have, have really have bought into the the mindset. They're, they're from more from these. Um, special, called specialist shock troops called the, the light infantry divisions who are who have been in the military for a long time and uh, you know deploy much more violent tactics but i think yeah his point really is that you know these soldiers are really kind of dragged into the army and um, they should be you know treated as people who have been manipulated and have been you know played by by these superiors and i think there's, there's an element of truth to that yeah definitely. return of the hunter paints a very scary very sad story about who the Tatmadaw is, what they want, and the, the extreme lengths that they will go to maintain power. Is there a possibility of a mindset shift? Can the Tatmadaw be reformed? Yeah, I don't see the Tatmadaw's view changing at all. I mean, I think this is really, really heavily ingrained. Um, as I say, it goes back to, it's everything they've told in their education as they work their way up through the system. It's everything they, 
you know, they're told by their superiors. It's all the, so the conversations they have or with people who hold the same mindset. So I really don't see that view. I mean, I guess having said that, we, we are with the defections, we are seeing that challenge a bit. Uh, but in terms of sort of the upper echelons, I don't see them shifting their view at all. I think they want complete and total control of the country. They want like, essentially the people to bow down at their feet and, and recognize them for how the, the great powers that they see themselves to be, which of course is complete opposite of how the resistance sees them. So you've got this kind of clash where, um, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be much space for progress at all, really. The conclusion to this one comes out swinging. Ollie has... Uh, a bit of understanding for why the international community has been, you know, not amazing in its response to Myanmar. But more can be done and more should be done. And he tells us what. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I always try and caveat this with uh, the military, oh, so the international response is never going to have a massive impact on Myanmar. Myanmar would always have been decided by its dynamics at home. You know, that's just the way, that is the way the world works. It's the way the international system works. The international system is messed up, right? If you've got, I mean, I made this case the other day in something where there's almost nothing it can do, right? Like it, it can, it, it's, it's having, you know, things like introducing sanctions are good steps, supporting justice mechanisms, you know, they're good steps again. They're also a part of the progress that needs to happen. But, you know, they're not going to send in, you know, the UN isn't going to send in peacekeepers into, into Myanmar, unfortunately, for, to the Myanmar people. That's not going to happen. So I think it will be driven first and foremost by, by what happens in Myanmar. I think, you know, where I've, where I've been most critical of, I think some of those more democratic countries have done okay. They've introduced sanctions, the likes of UK, US. Australia was very late to the party, but they obviously with the change of government, I think they, they did eventually come around and introduce sanctions. Um, and these are all like, they've, they've done quite a bit on sanctions. Just the other day, I saw that um, new sanctions have been introduced and these have been quite welcomed and they're good steps, but there is much more. You know, it needs to go much further. There's a lot more areas that the military is making money. And hopefully there is this concerted effort to find every avenue to cut off their finances. I think where I'm most critical, and I want to, ca again, caveat this with like, this is not attack on the UN as a whole. I think there are some UN agencies that do really important work and are doing really important work. But there's probably two, two bodies of the UN that I'm most critical of. And one is the Security Council. How, you know, here we are. This is meant to be the body that kind of protects world peace. And... It, you know, what have they done with well, one resolution so far? It's ridiculous. I, I just find it, I mean, I'm sure the Security Council does play an important role in certain conflicts around the world. But on this one, on Myanmar, I really, you know, I think it's been really, really poor. And the other one, I think, is the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. I think his response has been really poor. I think, again, there was an opportunity there early on after the coup to play a very visible visual role, to travel to, if, you know, if he couldn't travel to Myanmar, maybe the generals wouldn't let him travel to the region to come up with a, a clear plan to try and deal with this issue and I've spoken to a few people behind the scenes and they're just like there isn't there isn't a plan coming from his office to deal with this issue so yeah I think um yeah it's been it's been the, the Myanmar people feel let down by the international community and I think frankly rightly so